It's a joy to be with your people this morning, Heavenly Father. It's a joy to be in your word. It is your word. And it is way more important than any earthly thing. And I so desire for your people to hear you today and to not be distracted by anything from me. So I would ask you to take over. Fill us, fill me with your spirit. Let us hear you plainly. Let us see your truth and be hearers and doers of it. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right. First uh, John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Let me read those verses for us this morning. Apostle John writes, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We're going to stop right there. These are the words of the aged apostle and pastor whose name is John. He's writing to the people, Christians that he leads and shepherds uh, in the church that is in Ephesus, but in the surrounding region that he oversees. There are many other churches, and, and he is somewhat the pastor for these church families as well. And these people that he is writing to have just gone through one of the most painful spiritual experiences you can go through, a split in the church. Have you ever been through a church split? Have you? Some of you? Yeah, you're nodding your heads. Yes. Well, thankfully, I have not had that experience. I praise God that I have not. But I have spent time with those who have been there, and they would say that it is an exceptionally painful, even devastating at times, spiritual experience. And why would that be true? Well, that's true because when you join a church family, it is just that. It is family. Church is where we worship. It's where we fellowship together. It's where we make friends. We here do life at Idlewild Bible Church. We love God together. We invest in each other. We find places to serve and we commit together to enlarge God's kingdom. We live and we, we love and we do life together in this place called IBC. We do life together. And I love doing life with you. That's what we do here. Family. It's life. No doubt the Apostle John and the church families that he was caring for in Asia Minor in the late first century were doing exactly what we are doing. They were doing life together. John's passion as the pastor over these churches was to teach and to model and promote a healthy vertical relationship between these church families and their God through faith in Jesus. But as well, he was a passionate pastor for healthy horizontal relationships within these churches, between brothers and sisters, as they lived Jesus out with each other in their church family. 
Yet despite John's diligence, despite his passion, there arose in late first century Ephesus and Asia Minor a, a new false teaching called Gnosticism. We've been talking about this as we've been in this series together. It swept into Asia Minor and it came with devastating and divisive consequences for Jesus' church. Many professing Christians who were in these churches that John was overseeing were enamored with this new teaching and were drawn away from the church, and the church split. Some remained true to Jesus, but many peeled off, and they they followed these false teachers with their new doctrines and their, their new ways of experiencing God. I'm not sure if anyone can fully appreciate the pain that would be behind the words that John writes In this very same chapter, if you look at verse 19 in your Bible of chapter 2, here's what he says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Those had to be painful words for John to write. He's talking about a church split. Many had forsaken Jesus. They were chasing after false doctrines, were sinfully living only for themselves and and behaving in mean-spirited and hateful ways toward the Christians who they had been a part of and whose lives they had shared at at a prior time. Thanks to Gnosticism and, and this false teaching that had captured their heart. There was tremendous confusion within the church as to who was really a Christian and Who wasn't? How can you tell the fake from the real, the phony from the true follower of God? Well, John, Holy Spirit led, writes this epistle to say, hey, here's how you can tell the real from the unreal. You will always be able to tell the difference in three key ways. By 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 what people believe, by how they behave and by how they love. It's not what someone says that will prove their relationship with God is an authentic relationship, but their beliefs, their behavior, and the way that they love. And so over and over, as we've been learning in the course of this little five-chapter letter, John gives his first century and his 21st century readers the proofs of what it means to be a real Christian. Having taken up so far, if you've been with us, matters related to real, what real Christians believe and how they behave, and we've looked at that all through chapter 1 and up through verse 6 of chapter 2, John now, for the very first time, in verses 7 through 11 of chapter 2, is going to turn his attention in the direction of helping us to think about how real Christians love. John is going to tell us that observable, tangible love expressed for others, especially for other followers of Jesus, other brothers and sisters, is one very reliable indicator that I am in a saving relationship with the Lord, with God and with the Lord Jesus. And the absence of love for others will indicate the other side of that, that I am not in a relationship with God, a real relationship. Love is proof of real. John would say that. Now, before we step into verses 7 and following and unpack all of this, let's make sure we're all on the same ground of understanding when it comes to this, this thing called love. 
You know, over the years in our church family here, we have been in 1 Corinthians 13 many, many times. It's often referred to as what chapter? Of course, the love chapter. Well, let's take a crash course on biblical love. As I read, you, you, you follow along. Let me take your Bible now. Run with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll pick it up at verse 1. And here's what the Apostle Paul writes about biblical love. He says this to a church family in Corinth. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a, a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. And then if you jump down to verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, says Paul. These three, but the greatest of these. Is love. Now we know these words well. We've we've spent time. If we have been in the Lord Jesus for very long, you've been in this place. If we take everything that the Holy Spirit supplies here and we boil it down, we can accurately say that biblical love is that form of love which is self-giving for the good and the joy of another. And we've written that down on your little note page for you there as well. This is, this is agape love. If you've ever heard that term, the Greek word for love here is agape. It is the form of love which is self-giving for the good and the joy of another. This is God's kind of love, isn't it? This is how God loves. The kind of love found between the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is how they relate to one another with this kind of self-giving Love. This is Jesus' kind of love that he revealed to us to the ultimate degree when he went to the cross. This is self-giving love that is so essential to the nature of God, to the essence of who God really is, that, that John will later write in this epistle in chapter 4, verse 8, that God is what? It is so much a part of him. Yes, love. It is so much a part of who he is. God is self-giving for the good and joy of others, and not just for others, but for the whole world, right? He is that way. John 3.16 comes to my mind. You suppose we could say this verse out loud together, church family? You know it by heart, but if you read it off the, ver off the wall, then your version won't conflict. So let's just all read together. Let's lead, read this great truth about the love of God, okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And we say, amen and amen. We rest in this glorious truth, don't we? This glorious truth right here. God's love to us and for us in Jesus. 
And, and just to experience the joy of taking this verse into the place of the personal, how about we replace the word, the words, the world with our own names and read this one more time. Are you game? So when we read it this time, you read it and put your name in there. I will do the same. Ready? For God so loved Tim that he gave his only son. And when I believe in him, I shall not perish, but have eternal life. Do you believe that? That is a great way to think about this verse. Put your name in there and make it personal. Now, brothers and sisters, if this is if this is so, if this is so, wouldn't it stand to reason that the love that God has shown us through Jesus would be evident in anyone who truly knows Jesus and is in a real relationship with him? Is it reasonable to assume that love would would now be a part of of how we do life if we are really in Jesus. What do you think? It would, wouldn't it? I mean, it's, it, it should be. And John would say absolutely that would be true. That you can't be in a relationship with Jesus and not have love as a, as a, a significant feature of how you live your life. That brings us then on your note page to the commandment that never gets old in verses 7 and 8 of First John 2. John writes and he says, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, that would be in Jesus, and it's true in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, let's stop right there. On the surface, this sounds a little bit like double talk, right? As you read the, these verses, what I'm writing is not a new command, but it's a new command. Does that sound like double talk? It does to me. I mean, John will actually give us the love command in verses 9 and 10. But this command, he says, is both old and new at the same time. And we ask the question, well, how can that be? How is that true? Well, on your note page near the bottom, it is an old command in a couple of ways. First, it's old in that it goes way back in time, all the way back into the Old Testament, all the way back. God gave this command to Israel clear back in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. There on your note page, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, God says. I am the Lord. That's the first time we hear God give this command. Jesus calls this the second most important commandment of all the commandments that God gives, right? It's the second most important. What's the first? Love the Lord your God. With all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, Jesus' readers, or, or John's readers, would have seen this command to love others. They would have understood it as an old command. It goes way back into the Old Testament. But John says it's also old for his readers because apparently this command has been a part of their lives from the day that they were first introduced to Jesus. So it's old in that way. It's not something brand new to them. In verse 7, he says, You have had it. From when? 
from the beginning, right? From the beginning, meaning from the beginning of your faith journey with Jesus, you have known this command. You have had this command to love your neighbor. John pastored the churches in this region uh, of Ephesus for a long time. And, and many in these churches perhaps came to saving faith through John. And so loving others as a distinguishing feature of a true follower of Jesus was an old and familiar teaching to them. They've, they, they've had it since they've known Jesus. They are to love their brothers and sisters in their church family. Really love them. And my guess is that all of you who have a personal faith relationship with Jesus, you've known this command almost from the very beginning of the, uh, when you gave your life to Jesus. Would that be true? You've known this. It's an old command for you as well. So an old command, and yet John says it's a new command. Verse 8, at the same time, it is a new command that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, that's in Jesus, and in you. Now, how is it a new command? Well, when Jesus left heaven's glory and he put on flesh and he came into our world, that marked the, the, the coming of God's love into our world, didn't it? When Jesus came, the incarnation of God's love was realized. God put his love into flesh and bone in the person of Jesus. Jesus perfectly loved God. That's the very first commandment. Jesus perfectly loved his neighbor, or in this case, the sinful world. He loved the world as himself, second greatest commandment. So he did both of those. Jesus fulfilled the old commandments perfectly, but he does so in such a new and radical way that he actually makes that old commandment fresh. He, he makes that old commandment new in essence, in quality, which is why if you flip your note page over and look at the top there, John deliberately chooses the little Greek word kainos, for new here in verse 8. Though it's not apparent in our English uh, translations, there were in John's day a couple of different words for new. He could have used a couple of different words. Kainos does not mean new in terms of never having existed before, something that's, that's brand new, new in time, new in chronology, for example. There's another Greek word for that kind of new. It's the word naos. But John doesn't use naos, he uses kainos here, because this Greek word means new in an updated, refreshed, new way. Not new as a command to do something never commanded before, but, but new in how an old command will be carried out in a brand new way. Not new information, but a new application of what is already in place. Are you following me here? Say, nod your head and say, yes, yes, we, we got it, Tim. If it's still a little bit fuzzy, maybe it won't be after we hear what Jesus says in this very same way um, to his faithful band of disciples in the upper room on the night before he's crucified. Would you take your Bible and join me in John's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Now, John, the same John who writes the epistle of 1 John, is actually in this room on this night with Jesus before he is crucified. He hears the words of Jesus in verses 34 and 35. 
And you can just, when you read 1 John, you can just hear John repeating the words of Jesus, really. Jesus says, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. Now, what Greek word do you suppose he uses? Kainos. Exactly. Kainos. Something fresh and updated in its application. Not new information, but updated in its application. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Well, that's an old command, but Jesus just called it new. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's the new part of this old command, isn't it? That's the new part. Just as I have loved you, you love each other. Jesus says on the night before the cross, love each other and I'm going to be the measure. I'm going to be the, the standard for how you are going to do that. As I have loved you, you also love each other. Well, the obvious question begged by these words is, well, how has Jesus loved us? Because that's how I'm supposed to love you. I need to know that. How has Jesus loved us? On your note page, though a full and complete answer to this question would fill books beyond number, we can offer at least four far-reaching suggestions or answers to this question. How has Jesus loved us, church family? How has he done that? Well, first, Jesus loves us. Say it with me. Sacrificially. You agree with that statement? Absolutely. Jesus didn't just live for us, brothers and sisters. He did what? He died for us. We say yes and amen. He died for us. Shortly after this moment in chapter 13, Jesus will say to his followers in the same room around the same table in chapter 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends. And that's, of course, what he does. Exactly that. That's sacrificial love. Jesus didn't have to die our death. He didn't have to pay our sin debt, suffer unspeakable pain, shame, divine judgment. He didn't have to do any of that. But he did do that out of what? Out of a sacrificial love for you and me. Second Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't have to become our sin, but he did. Why? Because he loves us sacrificially, right? That's how he loves. But Jesus has also loved us unconditionally. You know, one of the most amazing things about the love of God, the love of Jesus, is that it's not like we have to reach some level or plateau or plane of spiritual goodness, some place of God-pleasing performance in our life before we're eligible to experience the love of God. Now, there are people who think they have to do that, that they have to arrive at some certain place before God would ever want to love them. But that's simply not true. The truth is, all of us are so lost in our sin that no amount of our effort would ever get us to a place where we would be acceptable 
in the presence of a holy God, right? We're never going to do that. We're never going to work our, pl- our way into the place of God's love. God chooses. He chooses to love us. And Jesus chooses to die for us apart from anything that we have done to merit that love. Romans 5.8 says it so beautifully, doesn't it? Can we read it aloud together? Let's do that. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You and I don't arrive and then get loved on, right? That's what this verse is saying. Jesus' love is an unconditional love. Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you love one another. Sacrificially, unconditionally. And then Jesus loves us, even though that love might not be returned. We love, even though we might not get loved back. That's how Jesus loves. Do you remember the, you remember the scene of Jesus at his crucifixion? He's praying to his heavenly Father for those who are responsible for, for calling for his death and, and for nailing him to this, this cross and lifting him up between heaven and earth. He prays and he says, Father, forgive them. Jesus Christ from the cross, Luke 23, 24. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so even if people never love him, what is Jesus doing? He's loving them. He's loving them. How very different from so much of the love that we see in our world. I'll love you if you love me back. That wasn't Jesus' way of loving And then we also observe in Jesus that he loves with a love that never stops loving. Isn't that good? Are you glad that's true? Yeah. Jesus' kind of love never runs out. It never gets cut off because he gets tired or bored or we do something that might break his heart. He never stops loving. On that night in the upper room, he told his followers in John 15, verse 9, As the Father has loved me, So I have loved you. So how does the father love the son? With a never ending love, right? And Jesus says, that's how I love you. With a never ending love. An infinite, never diminishing love. Then Jesus adds, abide in my love. Live in my love all the time. Because you can never not be loved by me. That's a a great thought, isn't it? You can never not be loved. That's a double negative, too. But that's okay. We're going to go with that. You can never not be loved by me, Jesus says. So how can you not, brothers and sisters, how can we not feel today very safe and very loved when we know these truths about Jesus? That he loves us sacrificially, that he loves us unconditionally, that that he loves us even when our our love back to him is, is, is faltering and failing and and sometimes missing. And how can we not feel very loved and very safe when we know that his love for us will never end? Now, Jesus says, verse 34, we go back to this John 13, 34. You love each other like that. You love each other like that. Like I have loved you. That's the old command made new by Jesus. And we say, but Jesus, we can't do that. 
We can't do that. You ask for something that is impossible. And you know what? Jesus would instantly agree with that. He would say that's true. He might say, you know, you're right. You, you cannot do this in your own power, by your own efforts. You will fail miserably to love like I love. But you're wrong to say that it is impossible for you to do this. Why? Because Jesus would never ask us to do what we cannot do. We need a power greater than we possess in ourselves. We need a God power. We need Jesus' own power, the Holy Spirit, to be able to, to pull this off. And the very cool thing about that is the moment you gave your life to Jesus in simple saving faith, who came into your life? The Holy Spirit came into your life so that you would have the power to love like Jesus loves. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 5. God's love has been poured into what? Into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you have the power to love like Jesus loves? You do. I do. With the Spirit of the living God living in us, we can love the way Jesus asks us to love. Love like he loves. And although we won't get to this till later on in our study series, John says this, In chapter 4 of his little epistle, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he says, Dear friends, since God so loved us in these amazing ways, we also ought to love one another. I mean, John's just repeating what he heard Jesus say the night before the cross. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We give away our own relationship with God when we give sacrificial, unconditional, possibly not returned, never-ending love to each other. And then verse 35, Jesus says, By this, all people will know, what? That you're my disciples. That you belong to me. If you have Love for each other. Church family, notice that Jesus does not say that everyone will know that we are his devoted followers, that we're real Christians if we love the world. Jesus doesn't say that. If we love unbelieving people, he doesn't say that. If we love strangers and down and outers and the, the homeless and all those with a different skin color and a different belief system than ours, he doesn't say any of that. We will do that if we really are in a love relationship with God through faith in Jesus. We will love those people. But that's not what Jesus says here. What does Jesus say? He says that all will know that we belong to him and we will know that we belong to him if we what? If we love each other in this room. That's what Jesus says. If we love each other here. If we just do a great job of loving each other in this family of faith called Idlewell Bible Church, brother to brother, sister to sister within this faith community, people will know that we're the real deal. That's what Jesus says, doesn't he? 
Husbands to wives, wives to husbands, parents to children, and children to parents, friend to friend. Everyone will know. All people will know. Not just the churchgoers, but all will know, Jesus says, you belong to me. They will know you belong to me. And how will they know? Because you love each other like I love. Those inside the church, those outside the church will know. That we belong to Jesus if we love like he loves. It's how we know if we're real or not. Are we real? Now, if we return to verse 8 of 1 John 2, you can go back there now if you happen to be in John 13. John says that this old new love command, which was in Jesus perfectly, is now in us too through faith in Jesus. He says, in him and it's in you. John writes that. This same love that Jesus perfectly loved with is placed in every true Christian, every real Christian. Jesus possessed this love. And all who possess Jesus possess the power to love like he loves. Do you believe that? Do you believe that, church? I hope you believe that because this is why John will argue so confidently that love for our brothers and sisters in the family of faith is a reliable proof of being a real Christian. Everything is based on that, that the love of Jesus is now in you because you are in Jesus. John then then uses an interesting metaphor at the end of verse 8. It's the metaphor of a sunrise because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John is describing, I think, a sunrise, and he turns that image into a spiritual picture of what is happening through Jesus and through us. So so look, look at this picture. Let's put this picture up. Do we have it, Emily? Right there. There we go. That picture. Yeah. Look at this picture with me. This is Idlewild. That's sunrise, isn't it? This is Idlewild at sunrise. At that moment each morning that marks the, the transition between the darkness of night and the light of a brand new day. And this happens every day, doesn't it? This is happening in the forest. Early in the sunrise, there is light. But there is also darkness. The sun is fully shining, but its effects are not complete. There is still darkness. But as the rays of light are breaking through, the darkness fades and more light fills the space. John is saying that love, God's love, began to penetrate the darkness of this world when Jesus came. The true light is already shining, John says. The love of Jesus, brilliantly revealed by his cross and his resurrection, has begun to push back the darkness of sin and Satan's kingdom. The darkness continues in this fallen world, but darkness's days are numbered, John says. They are what? Passing away. The true love light shines, and and in all who have truly trusted in Jesus... God places this same light. It's in Jesus, it's in him, and it's where? In us. It's in you, John says, so that we shine in the darkness. Do you you follow where John's going with this? Yeah? 
As we love like Jesus, as we love each other like Jesus loves us, as we love our neighbor, as we even, even love our enemies, we push back the darkness. Those moments are like sun rays that are, that are knifing into the darkness of this world, just like the, the rays are knifing into the forest here, in the darkness of the forest. Those moments are like that. And, and, and people know that we belong to Jesus. They will all know that you are my disciples by your love that shines in the darkness as you love each other in this place. They go together, love and light. They just go together. So what if someone claims to be in the light of Jesus, claims to be a Christian, but there is no love consistently flowing out of that person's life? What is that person? What is that person? Are they really a Christian? If there's no love, flowing out of their life for the body of, of believers? Are they a Christian? No. No. Say it. No. That wasn't too hard. They are a fake, right? They are a phony. If they're saying that they're in the light of Jesus, but they're not loving with the love of Jesus, they're not, they're not real. They're a fake. They're a phony. They're still lost in the darkness of sin and unbelief. Profession without love equals darkness. Verse 9. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. He lives in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Light and love, darkness and hatred. It's pretty clear. It's, it's, it's a really a simple word picture that anyone who's ever turned on a light in a dark room can understand. Before I turn on the light, there's total darkness. But the moment I flip the switch, darkness no longer rules because light has come into that space, Right? We understand the word picture. These are mutually exclusive thoughts. Light and darkness. They can never go together. They never come together. Since Jesus is light and all who have his light love others, especially the brothers and sisters in, a, in their family, their church family, the absence of love for those persons is a clear indication of what is, what of, of what is really going on in the heart no matter what someone might say with their lips. The absence of love for fellow believers reveals the absence of Jesus. Would you agree with that statement? The Gnostic false teachers and their followers in John's day, many of them had been in the church. And now they... They found a new way, a different way, a better way, a higher way to reach God and to be in a saved relationship. And so now they're looking down on the Christians that are in the church, despising them for not having reached this higher plane of spiritual knowledge and a more pure form of salvation. And so they have no room for the followers of Jesus anymore. Those that were once their brothers... 
are no longer. And John says, such persons prove by their lovelessness that they never knew Jesus. They're still in the what? In the dark. They're still in the darkness. So, Tim, are you saying that I have to show self-giving love for the good and the joy of those in this church in order to be saved? Absolutely not. A million times over, that is not what I'm saying. John is not saying that we love each other in order to be saved. We love each other because we are saved. You are tracking with me. There is a world of difference between those two thoughts, right? Our love, says John, is a valid indicator of a heart that has been transformed by the old new command that has been made real in our lives through faith in Jesus. The lack of love, or what John calls hate in order to draw the contrast here, that's a lifestyle marked by lingering resentments and anger and bitterness and strife and divisiveness and and judgmentalism. And that's what these false teachers and these, these Gnostic followers were They were claiming to be real, but they were living like that. Such persons do not have the light, John says. They don't have Jesus. They're in the darkness. They're walking in darkness. Now, I don't know how this is going for you in this moment, but it is quite convicting for me to share these verses with you this morning Because I can think of so many examples in my own life where I have failed to love my brothers and sisters like Jesus loves. I think of those who have been critical of me and how I have withdrawn from them. Who don't make choices that I would make who have a personality that annoys me, who have disagreed with me, or something else that that they did that made me pull back and withhold my love for them. I can think of those, those moments. I have failed to love so many times. And some of these are utterly embarrassing to me, even though they're years old, they, they still grieve me. Might you have a few moments like that of your own? Do they mean that we are in darkness yet, brothers and sisters? Do they mean that we are in darkness? You know, while Jesus loved perfectly, Our love for each other will never be perfect, will it? At least not in this life. We will not love perfectly, never failing. Our love will always be flawed. Does that mean we're not saved? Is that what John would be hinting at here? No, not at all. Now, John would say direction, not perfection. That's the real proof. Do you know Jesus in a, in a saving way? Well, what's the direction of your life, the overall direction of your life when it comes to this issue of love? 
As long as our heart is consistently longing to love more and more like Jesus loves and and to love in self-giving ways for the good and the joy of other believers in Jesus, that is a proof of real. That's what John would say. You're not going to do it perfectly, but the direction of your life goes that way. So what about those moments when, though my overall life reflects a longing to love like my Savior, I don't love like him? What about those moments? What do we say about that? Well, what if we just call those those moments our loveless shadows? They're on your note page. What about my loveless shadows? Those moments when I don't love like Jesus loves. Well, let's go back to that early morning picture one more time. Yeah. I think this picture is not, not only a reflection of the world that we live in, the true light breaking in and pushing the darkness away. That's happening through Jesus. But this picture is also, I believe, a, 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 a picture of my heart, my heart right now. And I think it's a picture of your heart, too. I have the light in my life. I've got Jesus in my life. He's in my heart. That, that light is the glory of Jesus. It's the glory of the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, it, it's who Jesus is and what he has done. Died on the cross, buried for my sin. Rose victorious to give me his life. That's the gospel. And that truth shines in my life. I have the light in my heart, the light of Jesus. And I want to walk in that light. I want to live in that light. I want to love like Jesus loves. And I want to obey God's commands to love. And yet I also see in my heart failures to love and to obey. There are dark shadows yet. Even though I've known Jesus personally since I was 12. Like this picture, I have shadows. You have shadows. Shadows are places in me that darkness continues to occupy, and the light and truth of the glory of Jesus has not pushed those out yet. These are the habits, the blind spots, the areas that my flesh continues to cling to. I have shadows in my heart where I don't self-give. I self-love. I don't sacrifice. I hoard. I don't seek others' joy. I seek my own pleasure. What do I do? What can I do with those shadows in my life? Well, I have to do with those loveless shadows what I have to do with every other sin in my life as a Christian. And what is that? Confess it, right? That takes us back to to verse 9 of chapter 1, doesn't it? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I ask Jesus to point a ray of His love light into that shadowy corner where I have failed to love you like I should. And I ask Him to change that in me. And his promise here in verse 9 of of chapter 1 is that he will do that. He will replace my unrighteous lovelessness with his righteousness. That's his promise. 
And brothers and sisters, in an odd kind of a way, maybe we can even find encouragement from these shadow places where loveless lingers in our hearts because they mean that there is the presence of light. Right? There are no shadows in a pitch black room. Right? There can only be shadows if there's light. There are no shadows in a pitch black, moonless, starless forest. If there are shadows of non-love, that means that the light of Jesus is in my life, exposing those loveless places and drawing me into the light. So I'll be encouraged. I'm not going to love perfectly. But the light is in my life, exposing the shadows when I don't. You follow that? Yeah. Spirit-inspired, John says, the absence of love means the absence of light. The absence of light means the absence of Jesus. The absence of Jesus means no salvation. However, the opposite is true and assures every genuine Christian about their relationship with God. The presence of self-giving love for the good and the joy of other brothers and sisters. The love that we have for one another confirms the presence of Jesus in my life. It's the redeeming light of Jesus that is shining out of me. The further from ourselves that the love of Jesus takes us, the greater our confidence that God is at work in us, making us real. And we so want to be real. Yes? Let's pray. Well, what do we say, Heavenly Father? What do we say, Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit? What do we say but thank you this morning for loving us sacrificially, unconditionally, when we didn't return your love and loving us with a never-ending commitment and devotion. What do we say to these things? But thank you. And what do we do with our lives but say, Heavenly Father, may the love of Jesus flow out of our lives for the, the people who are in this room who call IBC home, who are part of the body of Jesus on the hill and beyond. May we love them like you, Lord Jesus, loved us so that the world will know that you're real and that we're real too. We'll say thanks in Jesus' great name. And all God's people say, Amen and Amen.